Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, encourage us, instruct us, edify us, O Lord, with your holy word. Your people are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Let me ask you to use your imagination this morning. Try to go back in time and space to first century Rome. You're assembled on the Lord's Day. You're not in your home, your living room or bedroom, or those here are not in the sanctuary. But you are forced to gather together underneath the city of Rome as the persecutions of the Emperor Nero are raging above the city. And if it is discovered that you are a Christian by any of the authorities, you will be subjected to capital punishment, the penalty of death. So this morning, instead of gathering in your home, imagine that you are in the city underground, in Rome, in the catacombs, surrounded by skeletons and cadavers. And someone comes to you and reads to you for the first time the recently published Gospel of St. Mark. Do not be afraid. You who bear the name of Christ. And may those words that you hear for the first time give you peace. So if you place yourself with that imagination in that setting you will then truly appreciate and truly understand how this text was first heard to those first Christians. You see, to understand the importance of this message and any message, we have to first understand who gives the message, to whom the message is given to, and what are the circumstances or the life situation that evoked the message to be first said in the first place? So before we plunge into what we read this morning, I want to take a moment here to first provide some of the background. The when, the where, the who, the how of this gospel. First of all, the author is without question... Throughout church history, we all conclude that the author of this gospel was no other than John Mark. John Mark was a companion of St. Paul early in his ministry. But then later there was a falling out and Paul took Barnabas with him, forgive me, Silas, and John Mark continued doing ministry with Barnabas. But fortunately, later on, they reconciled Paul 
and John Mark. And John Mark became a valuable person in the ministry, in the apostolic ministry of St. Paul. And we know this through church history records such as Papias, Eusebius, Irenaeus, who all testify that the author of this text was John Mark. And John Mark was also an interpreter for St. Peter who had given his blessing according to those church fathers to write this gospel. Now the question of when it was written and to whom it was written is just as important. Again, it's basically a settled matter that the original audience of this gospel were those Christians who were being persecuted in Rome. Context matters or we can miss the intensity. We can miss the purpose, the urgency, what the first men, women, and possibly children heard when this gospel was publicly read out loud. So during this period, the emperor is Nero in Rome. Now when, Ro and when Nero came into power, in his first five years as Caesar, he was pretty stable and he had all his abilities in place. However, after the year 59, something went wrong. He went mad. And this craziness led him to engage in all sorts of cruelty and immorality. And in the year 64, the great fire of Rome took place. And this fire devastated the city of Rome. It completely devastated the city. 80% of the city was burned down. And many in the first century blamed Nero for the fire. They thought he was responsible for the eternal city coming down to ashes. But what made it so severe is that when things like this happen, everyone is looking for a culprit, someone to blame. And Nero, not being one to take on such accusations, what do you think he did? He blamed, yes, none other than those Christians. He blamed them and said they were the cause of that great fire. They are responsible for the eternal city to come down in ashes. So the word spread that the ravaging destruction had been caused by those antisocial, anti-religious fanatics, even known as cannibals, for they ate the bread and the blood of the one they said was the Christ Jesus of Nazareth. And so what did Nero do? He sent out his military to round up every Christian he could find. Again, context matters. And when he arrested those Christians, he did one of three things. 
First, he would take those Christians and he would clothe them in the skins of wild animals. And then, in public display, in all sheer cruelty, he would let go of untamed animals, untamed dogs, to devour them. For those dogs thought that they were animals, wild beasts, and they would eat those Christians until they died. Secondly, Nero would arrest Christians and dip them while they were alive in tar. And he would light them on fire and use them as a source to illumine his gardens. And if that wasn't enough to give sport to the city, other Christians were arrested and brought into the Colosseum and were fed to the lions for sheer entertainment and sport. Now that was the background of the year 64 when the great fire broke out and the Christians were accused and tortured, persecuted. And in all probability, it was the year of 65, the following year, that this gospel was first printed. The gospel according to St. Mark that we just read. That was addressed to people who were suffering daily. Daily suffering. Every day. Cruelty. Inhumane. Barbaric. And what does St. Mark want to do? He's reminding them of their salvation in Christ. He's reminding them of the passion that our Lord Jesus Christ too faced. And he's reminding them that Jesus himself was driven into the wilderness under the threat of the wild beast, the Satan. So in Mark, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. That's the thematic statement at the outset. Here the word gospel means good news. If you opened up a Greek New Testament, at the top heading, you would see kata, Matthion, or kata, Lucan, or kata, Marcon, or kata, Johannine which means according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. But what is according to them? The good news. You see, what we just read today and all of those Gospels are not biographies of Jesus. No, they're not historical records of Jesus. No, they're good news. It's an announcement of an event, of a person, and of his work. And why? To give the people the truth about who God is and his great love for the world. And in this story, I don't know where you are in your life today, but in this story, in the gospel story, the good news, when something takes place in an event, what do people do? They go out and announce it. 
And if you've never heard before that God had a son, has a son, and sent his son into the world. And in the Gospels, we read about the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And provides all people who confess and turn to him as Lord, eternal life. So it begins, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. You see, his last name is in Christ. It's not like his half-brother James was James Christ. It's a title that is given to him. And let me just pause here. You see, this book will eventually drive relentlessly to a confession made in Caesarea Philippi in chapter 8, the high point of the Gospel of Mark. And in that passage, in that event, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're one of the prophets. Others say you're Jeremiah. And some even say you're John the Baptist. Jesus says, okay, fine. But who do you say that I am? He's talking to his disciples. And then Peter, the great champion of Mark, says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. A twofold confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And those principal two statements there are affirmed here in the first verse of the gospel. What Mark wants you to know without wasting a second, immediately, immediately getting to the point, if you only had an hour to live and to hear this when you're in those catacombs, is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. Your life might not be too long. And so he doesn't want to waste any time to getting to the truth. And then what, he's, what does he do? He quickly takes us to the Old Testament which was an important part for the early church. The Apostle Paul often says he affirms the character of Jesus by saying Christ is the one who was born according to the scriptures. And Mark does the same thing here. He quickly goes to the Old Testament and points out that he is the one whom the Old Testament broadly was speaking of, the coming. And so Mark immediately locates the appearance of Jesus in the context of the prophet, the promised Messiah. And he says, as it is written in the prophets, and what he does here, he quickly summarizes three quotes. Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah. And he merges these three together to show us that the three prophecies that were all predicted, that before the Messiah would come, that God would first send a herald. The herald was not the Messiah. But he was sent by God to announce the coming of the Messiah. Now we remember 
that even today when Jesus, Jewish people gather for the Seder, when they celebrate Passover, there's always an empty chair at the table, isn't there? And if you've never been to a Passover meal by a Jewish family, you might wonder, why is that seat empty? Did somebody forget to show up? Are they late? No. The host will tell you that they're waiting for Elijah, that that seat is for Elijah. You see, Elijah was the last prophet written about in the last book, in the last page of the last chapter of the Old Testament. You see, Elijah never died, and he was taken up into heaven. And it was said that this Elijah would one day come back, and he would prepare the way before the Lord, because suddenly then the Lord would come. And so... 300 years have passed by. People haven't seen the Elijah figure. And here's this man named John the Baptist in the wilderness, dressed like a prophet, eats like a prophet. And he begins to preach. And he gets so much attention, more so, I would argue, than Jesus himself. There's actually more written about John the Baptist in historical documents during that time than we have of Jesus. Because the people weren't expecting a prophet. They felt the prophet, God would, was done with the prophets. But here comes this man, Elijah. And when people asked him, are you, Elijah, the one to come? He would say, no, I'm not. Yet when they asked Jesus if John was Elijah, the one to come, he would say yes. So how are we supposed to reconcile those two? Well, the scriptures tell us, and Jesus taught, that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah didn't physically, physically come back, but John the Baptist's work was the fulfillment of the coming of the spirit and the power of Elijah. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. God the Father is speaking to God the Son, the Messiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. And let me pause here. If there's any motif going through the whole Gospel of Mark, it is the wilderness. And in the real sense, the people who are receiving the Gospel for the first time are experiencing a life of wilderness preaching a baptism of forgiveness in the wilderness. Remember, you're in the catacombs. If you're captured this afternoon, you go and meet the wild beast in the Circus Maximus or in the Colosseum. That you will be exposed as Jesus was exposed to the wild beast in the land. And this is very significant, this wilderness because this is the place where God often met his prophets. Moses sees the burning bush in the wilderness. God calls a nation to himself when he brings them out of Egypt in the wilderness. Elijah 
is minister to ravens in the wilderness. And this concept of the wilderness runs through the Old Testament and begins in the New Testament. There's a man in the wilderness who is preaching the coming of the Messiah. God has spoken and called this man to prepare his son's coming. And he's preaching repentance for the remission of their sins. And all of Judea and all of Jerusalem went out and were baptized with him, by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins publicly. Maybe they were Anglicans. Just checking to see if you were paying attention. As we confess publicly our sins, we draw from the New Testament the practice of such discipleship. And Jesus was clothed, it says that John was clothed with camel's hair, with the skins of an animal. I wonder how the Christians who heard that for the first time, where their stream of consciousness went. You mean he was clothed just like Nero clothed my brother in the skins of an animal before he fed him to the dogs? This God who prepares our salvation is a God who dresses his prophet in the skins of an animal. John had a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, there comes one after me that is mightier than I. Whose sandal straps I am not worthy to loose. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Your Messiah is coming. And in another gospel, he will say, his fan is in his hand. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. He's not just coming at some time in the future. No, he's around the corner. He's not that far from here. The kingdom is about to break in. And shortly, you, dear people, must know you're not ready. You need to take a bath and you need to confess your sins and be cleansed. Now, wait a minute. Some Pharisees would say to him, that kind of stuff is for Gentiles. We're the children of Abraham. We don't need to be cleansed. Jesus will tell them later that they are children of Satan and that God would raise children of Abraham from stones if he wanted to. That the people of God were not ready for the Son of God. So those huddled today in the catacombs and back then heard the preparation of this Messiah. The Messiah had already come. The Son of God that made them be willing to be there were there. And if necessary to be eaten by dogs, burned as torches in the gardens of Nero, or thrown to the lions in the circus. I have a question for you this morning. Are we prepared? Are we prepared for the coming of the Son of God, the Christ? 
But today is a message of peace, though, isn't it? My dear brothers and sisters and friends, I hope that we can draw a lesson from those early Christians who knew what was at stake when they confessed Jesus was Lord and were not afraid. We're not afraid of the outcome of such a confession. Today, are we not living in a wilderness? Doesn't it not feel like a wilderness right now? We're in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And isn't there a wild beast? We call it a virus that is hunting down and sparing no person, man, male, man, woman, child. What is our response? My dear friends, be encouraged that Jesus has come. He has come as the Messiah to give life to all those who believe. May we not be afraid. May we be wise and diligent and care and and consider all our neighbors. But as Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome this world. I hope this word today is a message of peace to your heart and a reassurance that the God of the Bible is alive and his word has not ceased, yet 2,000 years later is being read and professed and accepted by many. The Lord bless you this morning and give you his peace.